You can be naked in podcast. Nobody has to see you. Yeah. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Alien Familiar RPG Podcast. I am Clayton. I'm Nina. I'm Kenneth. Kyle Perkins. KD. I'm Lenina. And before we get started, I just want to remind our listeners that you can find show notes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. And we are on Facebook at facebook.com slash alienfamiliar. And this episode is going to be a little bit different from any of the previous episodes we've done because we are not going to talk about one single topic. We are going to just kind of do a catch-all going over several different topics that I didn't feel like we had enough material to devote an entire episode to. So we're just going to go through as many of these as we can go through in the time that we have. You call it an extravaganza. Topic extravaganza. I like to call it a dice bag disco. I like his. Yeah, Dice Bag Disco is my favorite. So Dice Bag Disco is going to be the title of this episode. (laughs) I beat you, Kyle. (laughs) So um, the first topic that I wanted to kind of go over is how to make it work when a character clearly does not fit with the rest of the group or with the game itself. How can either you make it work or... How do you have that conversation with the person who absolutely loves this character that is basically dragging the game down, either because their their concept just doesn't fit, or maybe they're just annoying as hell and constantly in conflict with the other players or other characters at the table? I'll open it up. What do you guys think is the best way to handle the situation if, if the character just doesn't fit? Kill him off, obviously. <clears throat> <laughs> We're talking about like a complete well, accident in real life. I like the yeah. Th- yeah. Oh, okay. I like, you know, and in a lot of ways, that's every character Kenneth's ever played in an RPG ever. Um, and the way I've sort of found to deal with it is you just isolate that person completely and sort of really just hammer home that uh, you need to change, not us. Or that's a joke. Uh, have. <laughs> conversation with that person outside and often or not they realize that their character doesn't fit in whether or not they love it if it gets to cause party dilemmas or if they're always if they're the paladin in the group of evil beings it's just like it's not gonna work you're gonna lose every time and eventually it won't be fun Mm -hmm. and a tough part of that too is a lot of the times the reason why a character isn't working with the party is unfortunately something that the player really likes about the character yeah you know, maybe it's the fact that they're completely anti-authority, um, which, you know, not the worst thing in the world, but in a game where you maybe have to, like, deal with some magistrates or something, that's going to prove to be a problem. Um, and so that's unfortunately sort of where navigating it gets a little difficult, is you don't want to have this player lose out on some fun because they, you know, change a core aspect of the character. So maybe then in that case, you just need to uh, try to have a conversation and sort of see if they'll even... People need to change other parts of the character, maybe like tone down the anti-authoritarianism or authorityism. I don't know. I, I, it's 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 a tough line to walk, unfortunately. Or maybe talk with your DM and have like some sort of in-game reason why your character changes, like some event or traumatic thing or life-changing moment where your character is like, "Man, the authority sucks." Because I know we've done that before in a game where a character was very goody two shoes and very like, "Ah, we can't go behind my captain's back, even if he might be evil." 
And we convince them to be like, well, let's wait and see if they are. We can work this out together. We won't completely trash your captain, but we won't exactly tell them what's going on every second of the day. Mm-hmm. I know I talked about it kind of last time. Uh, we talked about, I think it was the social contract we had. And um, yeah. I had a similar kind of scenario I painted with um, one of my players. Whoa, you're an official guest star now, Kenny. <clears throat> oh, man. You've guested twice. This is awesome. Well, you thank and, you for having uh, me back. <laughs> oh, Triple A was on one. Mm. So far winning. You are winning. <laughs> anyway. But I brought up um, one of my players who will not be named. I'll call him Clarence. But uh, Clarence um, just started out. This is his first D&D game. Uh, a lot of the people there, like, my whole philosophy with D&D is like, hey, I'm here to be kind of be a gateway DM. Like, here's how the game is played, what you can do, and just show him a good time. And the campaign's going for, like, a year now, so I've had to deal with, um, I've had multiple people kind of tell me he's definitely the outlier in the respect that he just does his own thing, um, always finds a way to loop back to the party, but really does separate himself, so it's the group and him, so I almost have to do two sessions where he's doing his own thing, because I was too accommodating, like, hey, it's your first time, let me be nice, but the way I've had to rein that in, especially being a DM, it's hard, because I still want him to have fun, now he expects it of me, because I was too nice and gave him too much in the beginning, so now- You have a mouse, a cookie. That's what I'm saying, and I've had to be a little more punishing with his decisions, like, as he's gotten used to the game, I kind of treat him like a more seasoned player, and that's how I've done it, like, okay, now you know some consequences to your actions, because at first- I was showing you the game, but now you're playing the game. And that's, it's a hard balance to kind of hit, especially being a game master. Mm-hmm. So would you say you would advocate being a bit harsher on that player in the start so it doesn't turn into something like what you had to deal with? Actually, uh, funny you say that. I just started a new game um, where he's in it, and I have done that. I'm harsher because he's immediately trying to do a lot of what he did in the old game, and I was harsher. And he's he respects it, though. Like, I made sure I talked to him, and he's like, yeah, yeah. And he's taken a lot more like a seasoned player. So he's like, okay. Now I'm going to actually think about mechanics-wise what I can do with other players what I can do. Now he's more of a team player, still doing his own thing, but much more constrained. Not in like a bad way, but more in like, I'm not going to jump off the vessel, I don't know, fight a son. Because that's the kind of stuff he tried to do back in the other game. So, in reason. If you would have been this harsh on him for his first game, do you think he would have had as much fun? Do you think he would have quit? See, that's a good question. I thought about that. Honestly, I feel like he'd still not have as much fun because a lot of his crazy stories, and honestly, they turned out to be really fun for some of the party, not all of it, and that's where kind of the split happened. Um, so the game would be a different tone because some of the crazy things he did did change the story a bit, which for me was kind of cool as a storytelling aspect, but I, I feel like it still would have had the same level of excitement, just he would have learned earlier, right, that uh, maybe it's not okay to go off and do that or do things more in the game's, like, actual rule base. So um, I... Going forward, I'm probably going to be a little more, at least in the beginning, like, hey, these are the rules, let's stick in these, and then branch out from there just so people don't go crazy and wild. In the end, I'm still happy with how everything turned out. I'm just trying to be more careful going on. Yeah, I've definitely made what I now view as a mistake with a new player to the game and them wanting to do things and ended up, you're wanting to go off again, uh, go off apart from the party and do this special thing, like if you were a rogue or something, and doing it once or twice to just kind of encourage their role-playing. But there does reach a point where you are no longer encouraging um, participating in the game. Like cooperative. You are encouraging the isolation of that character from the group. And I, very early in my career, I did do that um, with a particular player. And it became such a habit that I was not able to then break it. Um, the, the player then, when he was with the group, he had the more forceful personality at the table. So after he was comfortable with the game and driving his own character through his own story, taking like 
in the past going off on his own, when he was in with the big group, it became him imposing his will upon the rest of the players of the group. It just drugged the game down at that point. And he was, it was what he expected from the game at that point, partially because that was what I had encouraged. And it was really tough just kind of breaking that cycle because he had it in his head that all of these ideas I'm having are great for the story, even though they were isolating um, different people from the group. I wonder if it breeds sort of this idea of I don't need the party to do things. Um, you know, I've definitely had, I haven't been that player, but I've been in games where a player is so frustrated by like lack of decision making or like, you know, oh, you're spending too much time debating. I know I can do this better by myself. You said other player or another player. Oh, wasn't you? That was not. Yeah. Um, and so then they'll just break off by themselves and the GM allows it. But then, you know, again, like you said, Clayton, you then sort of that player, especially if they're new, develops this idea of, well, I don't need other people. Like I can just do most of the things on my own and it's quicker and it's more efficient. I don't have to, you know, deal with that whole concept of people having differing opinions. I don't know. I I feel like maybe Kenny's onto something and you do need to like have a firm hand, even if they're a first time player in the beginning, I'd say like it's only, and that's it's player to player. Like obviously it's going to be, it's not the same for everyone. Like um, my other two friends, I had three that were all new. Um, They just stayed within the rules. Um, I I kept like, I was playing three, five and I just said, Hey, do everything you want. And one friend who really loves just kind of like the crunchiness in the system really went in and made a, pretty intense character now. He played it one of the strongest clerics I've ever seen because he just latched onto it, but he stayed within the rules. And that that's fair. Like, everything he picked was what I said he could do. Now, my other friend who's kind of shy, I know we kind of talked about this, um, or you guys mentioned an older podcast, like, um, I, that was a whole different challenge, but he stayed within the rules, had fun. So it was just that one, it's his personality out of the game machine. And that's why, um, for him specifically and other players that are stronger personality-wise, I have to sit down saying, this is a role-playing game, and I'm really glad you have a good, you know, speech and good voice for this, but, um, I want to make sure we have, it's fun for everyone, it's not just for you. Because there's other mediums if you want to do this by yourself, but if we're doing it in a collaborative group, I want to make sure everyone has a chance. To think as kind of the line of when you've done enough encouraging, they've, they've gotten a good grasp of playing the game and understanding that how they how they play the game and now it's time to kind of pull it back into the party is once they start to do it themselves. Um, it's okay whenever they're trying to figure when they're still new, they're so new that they're like, I don't know what I can do here. And you ask them, well, just think out loud for a little bit and tell me what you're thinking of what you can do. And then I provide um, encouragement of, of possibilities from there. Once it's to the point where that player is no longer asking for the advice on what to do, they're making the decisions then and there. I think that's the perfect point to start putting out options of, well, you know, you've got three or four other players around the table. Is there any um, way you can do that, including them in it and growing it at that point to make sure that the solutions to the problems that are presented aren't just things that that player can do and really tailor encounters to the things that the other players at the care at the table can do. I think that's a really good way to go about it. If they, what if they refuse to either change or rearrange their character or even try to work with the party? What if they're very stubborn? What do you do then? Well, you talk with them about it and you have to lay it out and say, especially if it's the game master who's seeing this and it's dragging down their fun. I feel like the game master has just as much right to say, Hey, this isn't working 
as anybody else at the table and let them know that this isn't the direction that this game is going to go in. If I'm a game master, I'm not having fun. If I'm a player, say I'm, I'm really not enjoying this. Um, it, but that takes a lot of courage, especially when you're new to the game. If, um, if the entire group is new to the game, which is the experience I was doing with the player I was describing earlier, I handled it wrong. But since then, I've tried to uh, make it clear to the player that come to the player and say, this is what I see your character as. And here are some ideas of how I can, I can really work with the, your character if this one little thing was a little bit different. Some players just won't respond to it, but most people are accommodating enough to realize that if, if the fun is being impacted, if the other people at the table aren't having as much fun, most people are going to be able to, uh, to adjust a little bit. And I say most people and the particular player that I'm talking about was not one of those. And it did get to the point where he was asked to no longer come back because he was just absolutely dominating the game. All of his decisions were the only decisions that he would listen to, the only things that he would do. Um, and he was doing just... He he played a chaotic evil character every single time in a D&D game. Uh, yeah, the person in my game is playing chaotic evil. And I, I know exactly what you mean. He kind of um, stamps other people's, like, I wouldn't say he's, like, actively trying to take out their opinions or trying to take out their decisions. It's just his is the one they're going to do. And if not somebody else's, like, I know a few people in my game have said their voice, they feel like they can't be heard just because theirs is so, like, omnipresent. They're just like, yeah, if I say anything, they'll just kind of quiet me down. So, I mean, I can definitely sympathize with that. And it's gotten better now, but I've had games in the past where, yeah, we've had that person who won't, like, listen to reason. And it's just doing their own game, so... It's a hard balance. Like, that's what I found, especially being a GM. Like, back when I was a player, it was hard enough because it felt awkward bringing it up to the rest of the group. Like, we're all thinking it, but you're like, who's going to say it? Or if as a GM, you're like, okay, now I have to be, in some cases, you feel like a jerk. Like, hey, I may have to kick you out of my game, but you realize you're being the worst. So, Mm -hmm. it's not easy. And a lot of times, it really is the Game Master's responsibility. If the players aren't having fun, the Game Master should keep an eye on the other players at the table. If the other, if one of the other players at the table comes to the game master to address this issue, that means that more than one player at the table is having that same issue because it does take a lot of courage to come up and say, I have a problem with this. And ultimately it falls to the game master because they are the one running the game. They are keeping the game running. All right. Do you want to transition to uh, a topic? Because that was pretty good. That was good. Um, So now we'll transition. Um, actually, that was a little bit of a segue into the next topic yeah. of how much responsibility does the game master have to ensure that each player is around the table is engaged, is having fun with game. That's one I definitely kind of diving into, like we just said, uh, with my new players. I'll just use that example again because they're great. I love them all. But um, in the beginning, it was a lot heavier in my favor where like I'm trying to make sure they have fun because I'm teaching them a system, trying to engage them. And like you were saying earlier, show them what can you do in this scenario, what abilities, what are skills, what's an attribute. Like they had all these questions and I have to facilitate that, make sure it doesn't bog down their fun while still showing them that D&D is a great system or like any tabletop can be super cool because you can do whatever you want. And in the beginning, I definitely say like... I can't give it like a good proportion, but I maybe like 80% of it was me driving in the first two sessions, but it slowly ebbs as they became more and more seasoned. And uh, later on, I'd say once I play, like have a group of players who've played for years, um, it's, I'd almost say like maybe it's not quite 50-50, but it's, it's a two-way split where the players, 
have to have really engaging good characters they really love to be because that shows that they're having fun having fun with the group and then the dm has to give that good story for them to interact with a world they can feel like they live in so it's a two-way street for me and when i have players who know what they're doing i I try to go at least for 50 50 because i need a response for me to give them something Mm -hmm. i think that the ideal i think you're kind of awesome there i think the ideal eventually is you know the players will like write stuff into their backstories that they want you to like incorporate and you know they leave it up to you how to like you know interpret and incorporate it but like they're like hey i want my character to have like a rival ship with this guy and then that that's going to impact the story somehow but it's up to you how to interpret that and i think that's ultimately the ideal for eventually like how to engage players sufficiently so it is 50 50 between the player and the gm like you also said though kenny i think that uh Having first-time players, you're as the GM, you have to take on more of that responsibility because they don't know. You know, like cooperative storytelling is a hard concept to kind of wrap your head around initially. I think, um, and so the idea that oh, I can approach my GM and say hello, this is something I would like maybe for my character to have, and ideally, if your GM's not an asshole, they're not going to be like, well, this is my game. I you know I can't, I don't want to do that or something. So I think that for that first time, you kind of have to guide them a little bit and be like, hey, you're at a bar. There's uh, someone there. What do you do? <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> you recognize them from your hometown, you know? And maybe they're like, wow, I fucking hate that guy. I'm going to go up and hit him, you know? And you're like, all right, uh, roll mischief. They're like, what's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, you and then you're like, well, now we tell you about mechanics. <laughs> I mean, I do think it's um, uh, two different questions versus um, of engaged versus fun, because I think it's really up to the players to be interested and engaged like like interested in the idea of playing a and game and, and wanting to play the game and once you get people that are interested in playing and want to play the game it's up to the dm to create a fun story so that people can have an interesting um, experience but i do think it's up to the players to be engaged with the game and not like flippant or bored or annoyed let me ask you a question oh, okay <laughs> you, no do you do not want to have a question <laughs> no, asked? No, no, go for it okay so let's assume you're in a game in which um it's like a 100 percent dungeon crawl right like no role play really just dungeon crawling um oh jeez. you know maybe there's some looting mechanics and like there's a chance to like the the most role play you have is Every once in a while, your face character can roll like a diplomacy check to like convince an enemy to like stand down. Well, that game's not for you. Hold on. <laughs> okay, jump in, <laughs> jump in the gun here. Uh, now, in that case, is it up to the players to like make their own fun? Or is that a case where you kind of look to the GM and say, hey, this isn't really working for us? I think that's when you look to the GM and be like, hey, nobody's really having fun. This is like a crunch and it, it, we want to roleplay instead of just do mechanics. Like, I think, I think that is up to the DM. Now, there are players that just enjoy. Yeah, no, like if they're having fun. But, like, in this case, assuming it's like a group that likes a balance. Now, here's a question, and you're hypothetical. By the way, listeners, I'm real sick, so I have to limit what I say, which might be a good thing. It's like a word limit. Yeah. I just, um, are the players trying? Like, imagine there's a group of four, and the DM is only throwing dungeon crawls at them. Do the players actually try to banter and get in character, and then have that stifled by the DM being like, oh, Okay, people, um, <laughs> th- there's a kobold, and he needs to be dealt with. You, you're, he's looking at you. He's got a spear. <laughs> like, like interrupting their roleplay? I, I don't know if I would necessarily go that far. I would say maybe there's some cases of, like, the, the Game Master being like, 
all right, now we got to move on to the next room or something, mm-hmm. you know, but not necessarily mm-hmm. like the kobold stabs you while you're talking to your friend. You well, take, right. You take damage, yeah, no, you know? th- this might be like a, a fluffy feel-good way to address the question, but I think if the DM is doing what you just said, you know, the, the, the party's having a, a blast and role-playing, and then your kobold sneaks up behind you and spears you in your hamstring. That's, that's annoying. That's really annoying. Like, nope, that, that would be, that would be zero fun. And that might be a situation where literally if that happens to you, the group could look around and just be like, alright, out of character. Listen, Francis, like, this isn't <laughs> Francis. Fun. Um, but if, if the players are able to take a little bit of action and, 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 you know, kind of bring their own fun into it without having to, like, sit down and be like, this isn't working. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Um, again, maybe it's a feel-good thing to just say, feel out your situation. But I think that both approaches could fly. I think that's what I was situation. trying to say. Like, if the characters are, um, if, if the players are trying to have fun and they're still not having fun, that's that's when it's up to the DM to change something. Mm. I feel like in each situation, it's very much like a friendship or relationship with the DM player uh, ratio. Sometimes the GM will have to put in more, and sometimes the player will have to put in more. It'll vary from game to game, depending on if we completely diverge the GM's path, and they don't have the ability to keep up all of that fun, and so it's up to us I have to... no problem keeping up my fun. <laughs> <laughs> there it is! Wait. I'm back, baby! No! To the listeners, um, he, he just delivered that line and then, like, had to stifle a cough. Um, but he's he's doing it. But he had commitment and I was next to him and yeah, I felt that energy. There was conviction <laughs> in that statement. So, he's back. See, that's, like, an interesting concept, though. Kind of go back to what we were saying. Um... <laughs> I like that. It's like a weird idea. Now, hear me out, guys. Like, this is like obviously a controlled environment, like we're saying, very hypothetical, but I can see both having a very interesting outcome. Like, two ways to start a game, let's say with fresh players. Like, it's like, Billy, Jill, and Cobalt are in a game together. And they're like, yeah, let's, let's have a D&D. And you're like, okay, so... And, like, Cobalt's parents are really into D&D, and yeah, he's no. only, like, recently getting into it. He's not a huge fan, but he's, he's there, His help. parents named him fucking Cobalt. Yeah, and he's actually a human. Um, but Cobalt's there, really hating his time. You have to make sure he's engaged, right? And the other people. So, like, what I the way I usually do it, like I said, is I like showing a very open world, saying, like, you have a lot of options, roll anything you want, explain to me why I think that would work, and try to engage the player by saying, let's role play first, get combat second, because that's usually how you want to do it. Like, feel your characters, feel the world, feel real, you know, and, like, really get into it. But there's the flip side, where you have a hardcore dungeon crawl. Like, DM's like, here we are in the dungeon, classic D&D, and then this is just 100%, like, they're putting on the players to see if they start role playing themselves, acting it out in this more or less confined space and the dm's like you have a safe place to do what you want but i'm just gonna give you a story and you guys just do you like not facilitate just say hey he'd explain the mechanics beforehand explain how it works just see if the players naturally make the thing themselves at the uh, dm churning the pot kind of thing i was in a fifth edition game a couple years ago in which we were all it was sort of that scenario i described where it was a hardcore dungeon crawl where we weren't in a physical dungeon but it was like, you go to one location, you grind, you go to the next location, so it's like a combat you slog? grind. Like, it's a combat slog. It was just combat. None of the NPCs really wanted to talk to any of the party. See, that's rough, though. Um, and so, like, in that in that scenario, like, me and the other PCs ended up trying to, like, like I was asking uh, Nina, like, make our own fun, where we would just try to, like, see what goofy things we could do with our abilities, or, like, you know, try to talk to each other a little bit. And so we had to make our own fun and... and I felt like in that particular scenario, 
the GM should have tried to do, like, to read the room a little bit better and done a little bit more to try to engage the party. Because I think I've talked about this game on this podcast before, I'm like, that was a game where I was a storm cleric, and I was, like, every every turn just like, alright, I, ras- I I roll cast lightning. My, my turn again. Cast lightning. Ready, guys? Lightning. Lightning. You're like, like, you know, and that's very repetitive, right? That's not very fun. So... I think in that case, the GM needs to, like, read the room and say, okay, maybe I need to change up what I'm doing, rather than just being like, I have this very, like, thin storyline that you're going to go to these places and you're going to fight these things, and that's going to be the game. Yeah. It's, that's one of those things, like I said, there's a way both could work, but it just depends on the players. And like you said, it boils down to, are people, like, on their phones and not engaged, then you know you need to change your story. Like, that is on the GM if the players are just, if they're trying their best and you're not giving it back. Yeah. Yeah. It goes, now, uh, like, if... The, the if the inverse of that is, you know, players are on their phones and you're trying, then that's... Yeah, that's a whole different story. <laughs> yeah, what do you do if, sitting around the table, the two players who are physically closest to the game master are actually engaged with, in a scene, and then the players who are sitting the furthest are, at the end of the game, they say they, they, they enjoy it, they had a lot of fun, but during the game, it's clear that they are not engaging in the game. I think next game, switch up seating on purpose. See if that works. Well, that's an interesting idea. Um, I was going to say that the seating might need to be rearranged there. Um, yeah. I also know that um, it's harder with bigger groups to keep everybody engaged all of the time. Also, that longer games tend to take a lot of attention, and keeping attention for like a solid four or five hours is very hard even if it is fun and engaging and is very hard to concentrate on one thing at a time especially if you're waiting for your turn and it's six people ahead i'm usually willing to cut some slack if those people that are in the back are on their phones but like as long as they're like showing investment and like engaging when it's like group activity and stuff focused on them i'm willing to cut them some slack because like you know if it's like a party of eight or nine people, it's a little hard to be, like, invested in every single person's storyline and then, you know, really just be like, oh, man, what's what's Thurgood doing today? Oh, he's out in the woods. Kevin's I nice. love druids. Also, it's 2017. Like, until the firing sequence is finally initiated, we're going to be glued to our phones, you know? Once the firing sequence is initiated, well, <laughs> we're gonna we all, all know what's going to happen with the We're all going to be glued. That's why yeah. I burned my phone. Also, as long as they're not distracting anybody else. Like, if yeah, like, don't be playing music on your phone or yeah. something. Yeah, right. showing, like, memes anybody, man. <laughs> yeah, you've never done that ever. Right? Never unless it's specific <laughs> to the situation. Unless it is specific to the situation, you're just like, ah, oh, yes, this music would fit perfectly. Or, oh, huh, this is your character right now, at this very moment. Even that would piss me off. Even if it was just music? If, if I were a GM and there was a player who just started playing music on their phone... Well, if they had sort... mentioned, I have a song that is perfect for this Oh, okay. I, mean, I see what... Yeah, like, not just be first. like, this is the song that is playing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, I... Given the right permission first. Given the right group in the right situation, like, if, if you know, I mean, I, I'm not saying I'm that grumpy. Like, I could be okay with it. But if, if, if like, I'm, I'm imagining a group of people I don't know that well when I was thinking oh, about okay, that. okay, okay. And if someone was just, like, we're in the middle of something, and they're just like, oh my god, this is your character right now, and just, like, hold their phone up to the table, and I'm just like, oh, okay. So that's when you uh, smack the phone out of their hands? <laughs> and yell, fire sequence activated. Well, <laughs> 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 fucking, um, oh, I forget which director now. There's that famous story about the director who, uh, 
would uh, nail gun uh, ca- the, the crew's cell phones to, like, the backside of um, the, the set, you know, where it couldn't be seen if, if, if a phone went off. Um, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um, I heard that story, too. That's I don't remember who it was. I want to say... I want to say John Carpenter, but that's like wrong. like like fully I nailed. John Car- I mean, like, uh, Carpenter using a, a nail gun. Wait, though. oh wait, uh, Cameron, James, James Cameron. Wait, James, 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 James Cameron. Cameron. Are you serious? Nail gun cell phones. I'm I'm seventy one percent sure that it was James Cameron. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna. So during Aliens, did you just find that like, a huge box cell phone? He's like, let me see that. Just like nail guns it to the wall. <laughs> that's amazing. That's horrible. <laughs> I I kind of love it. No, that's actually If it was my phone, I would have probably just. Nail gun his hand to the wall. The worst part is, like, imagine he pins your phone and another one rings your other pocket, and you're like, I'll take that. <laughs> 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 Alright, that's a pretty good comedy sketch there. <laughs> then, like, he takes that one, and then your beeper goes off. And then it nail guns into your head. I once nail gunned 20 mobiles to a wall. 20? Whoa! <laughs> what an angel! What a man! Um, um, this article <laughs> says Avatar creator James Cameron shoots from the hip. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, that makes it even better. That means the person is holding their phone up to their face, answering it, and he's just like, quick drop, boom! And just like, the nail gun, like, shoots the phone against the wall from 20 paces. Just dead panic. That's awesome. (laughs) Haven't missed a shot yet. (laughs) (laughs) A great shot. Wow. Um, I was gonna say, though, that's amazing, but uh, I have to make sure, hold on. I remember what we were saying, because I had a point, and it was, uh, we just, poor James Cameron's amazing. Oh, people on phones, right. Um, So that, it's pretty common in my game, like, where people will be on phones, but like you said, bigger parties, they're engaging themselves, and still when I call on them, they'll like be like, oh yeah, but that's how I usually re-engage someone, or especially with new players, like, if I feel like they're like, don't know what to do, or like, on their phone, like, oh, it's never my turn, or I feel like I can't get my voice out, because, you know, Clarence over there is like, punching a wall, and everyone's looking at him, because it's funny. I'll like, point over and be like, hey, well, what do you think? And I'll name that person and point at them, they'll look up from their phone, whatever they're doing, and be like, oh, my character does this. So I can tell if they still want to be part of the story, they just need that hook again, and that's where it goes, at least in my games, back to the GM, where they're like, I don't feel like I can really come back in until I need, because every time they try to get pushed back or feel like they can't, so that's when I'm like, take this line and pull them back in the story. And I only do that when I see that they've been quiet for like, maybe like 15 minutes. Cause sometimes you can't avoid two players talking to somebody else. They're in the other room yeah. and people know that. But afterwards I'm like, okay, what's everyone else doing? Like I always make sure immediately after this, I'll like, and if something's going on too long, I'll pause it dramatically. Like a conversation's gone like five minutes real time, which it's, it's fine. But if nobody else is engaged and they say something dramatic, I'll be like, all right. And pause. Let's see what everyone else is doing. So I can make sure we keep the room going in segment. And that usually works well for my players. Cause one of my games now has like eight players and there's really no other way I can do it. So, um, I just have to do it in segments unless they're all together. Mm-hmm. It's hard though. Like it's again, it's a balance. And if the players, as long as they're okay with it, they told me it's fine. That's why we do it. If not, I have to you know try something else. Um, something that was hit on quite a ways back in this conversation is just a point that I want to hit home, um, or my opinion that I want to hit home about a particular point. Starting a game in a tavern for new players is a terrible idea. <laughs> Because you've got a group of players who are new to the game, they're not used to role-playing, they don't know what they can do, and you're like, okay, you're sitting at a table, what are you doing? Crickets. Crickets. Those ways of starting a campaign, I feel like that only works with a group of players who are one, have some experience behind, behind them, and they are the types of players who like pretty much everybody at this group, if you give them a character, 
they are going to run as far and as fast with that character as the Game Master will let them, away from whatever story the Game Master wants. <laughs> so that type of uh, opening is great for those types of players who have a lot of initiative, but throwing it in for a brand new group of players, I've tried it before, and it every single time it just falls flat. It falls flat until some NPC starts a fight or a group of orcs bursts into the bursts in with torches and set fire to the bar. Yeah, sometimes you need a strong enough story hook, and that's why my last game I just started, I started them in the location, more or less the castle where they're getting their mission. So they had that moment where they all get out of the ships, talk to one another, and then immediately usher them to the story. So they make sure they're invested in this like the actual like thing I'm trying to weave first, and then they can start doing their own like interaction while they're flying out and about the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, I, I agree with you. Like, sorry, out the tavern, like classic D anD I did it my first time I ever played because they're like, yeah, it's like you know one of the tropes, but it's fun. But with that, I try to make sure they all meet each other, have a chance to talk, get a feel for the group, and then pull them right into the story. So at least they know, hey, we do have this quest. But after we have this first initial plot hook, we can start doing our own. Mm-hmm. What I like to do is not necessarily start out in media res, but like a group of D anD D characters, they have already been brought together but they're getting ready to talk to somebody important. An analogy would be like in the movie The Usual Suspects, where all of the people are brought together and they're in, they're in the lineup. That's kind of where I would like to start a game. They're already together. They have a reason for being together. Maybe they don't know what the reason is, but something important is just about to happen, but they've got the latitude to to be in their characters, kind of get into their characters' heads before the plot begins to move. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, I totally agree with that. Because that's what we did. We're doing a Star Wars game. And that's what, exactly what I did. I brought them into uh, Vader's castle. And they're about to be Vader, and that's all they do. So talking about, like, with Darth Vader, then, like, um, you were touching on how with your players you like to put them in the situation, in that line of, like, be, like, at the precinct, whatever it might be. And, and that's how I tried to do my last game, or just started it. And players, like, had pretty resounding success. They really enjoyed it. Um, like I said, it's a Star Wars game. And um, they went to Vader's castle, and I was like, alright, your mission is here for Vader. A few people actually played that roleplay beforehand just to show why they're there. But everyone else, I said, um, fit in your backstory. You're here by your own volition. Or if he forced you, that's up to you. But you are all here for one reason. And I gave them about ten minutes to roleplay when they all landed in like, the docking bay, more or less. And that was their chance to show their characters and how like, either are they can be reserved, study the other people around them. One of the players offered tea to everybody because he's a protocol droid. Like, it's just how they played it, and then they went up to the main plot, like I said. So I gave them a moment to meet each other, see their team, who they're going to be with for the next however long we run this game, and then brought in a good old mini plot hook and then sent them out to the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Which um, they liked, but there's also there's dozens of ways you can start a game. So that's almost a question in itself. Like, what would you say is one of your favorite ways a game's been started for you? That you started the game? Like, what really gets you into a game? My favorite opening for a game that I've ever run was for an... Uh, well... It wasn't exactly an evil campaign. It was a campaign where, quote, there is no presupposition of being of a particular alignment, which translates to an evil campaign. (laughs) And all of the player characters started out with amnesia. I started them out having just drank water from the river Styx, which in D&D causes you to lose your memory. So... It was right then and there. They have no memories at this point. They're basically standing in front of this massive demon that's like 50 feet tall. And he just says, um, he says, go forth and do my bidding. And then just shoves them all through a portal. And they wake up. They're 
they're in the middle of a dungeon. They don't know what the hell is going on. They have a couple of minutes to figure out what they're going to do. They have a couple of minutes just to see who who else is in the party because they have no idea who they are. They have no idea what they look like. They're just looking around, and every single one of them was a like a monstrous player character. So I give them 60 seconds to start to ask what the hell's going on before a band of, of good adventurers burst in see this group of monsters sitting around conferring about something and start to try to uh, do what a bunch of good adventurers do and just start wailing on them. No explanation needed because they're evil, uh, monstrous races. That was probably my funnest uh, opening for a campaign I've ever done. That's super cool. Is this favorite we've played in or run or both? I was saying either, either or. or. Um, I... Yeah, I'd say definitely my favorite running so far has been that Star Wars one I did. But um, yeah, like you can do if you GM'd or there was a Star Wars game that uh, Lenina and I were in that opened very, very standardly with a a bar fight. But despite the standard opening, I think what sold it was the GM, was a huge Star Wars nerd, and just encapsulated <laughs> the uh, like moment and the tone and the mood of the fight in the bar, like, absolutely perfectly for a Star Wars game. So you are saying that this Game Master was a huge Star Wars nerd. That's saying something. Yeah, Coming it, from me. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Um, like, he really just nailed it with the music and sort of what was going on and, and the way the fight went and the tone of it and the, like, there was a chase that followed. And all of our characters were all there, I think, on the same assignment, right? We didn't know that we were. Yeah. Because we were all working for different factions, like... Uh, I was working for the Empire. Lenina's character was working for the Jedi. It was a stealth. It was stealthy. And Not our very stealthy, but stealthy. third player was like a bounty hunter. Yeah. And we were all there to like protect this senator, but we were all working for different factions. And so like this fight breaks out because this third party tries to like kidnap her. And so like I got my lightsaber out and I'm like swinging at people and she's got her lightsaber out and I'm like, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. And then, and then we're like, we got to get the senator though. And then the bounty hunter's over there like... Everything is awful, but I guess I'll use my flamethrower. Um, and so, it, and it was just, it was very, it was just very, like, well done. And it was my favorite opening for a game, I think, because of all that. And also just that, like, we didn't need a reason to all need to work together immediately. We all had it, but there was also this, like, veneer of you're still doing your own things, if that makes sense. Like, because we were all working for different factions, like... We may have had the same goal, but we still felt like our characters were there on their own personal thing. And that's important. Yeah, I was going to say, um, <clears throat> with the whole idea of, like, staying the standard bar scene, like, if the GM does it well in that case, it can be, like, really fun. Like, I was just you saying that, like, reminded me. The uh, longest game I've ever been part of was uh, one of our friends here ran one for about almost three years. It was, like, at least two years I was in it. And it opened up just a bar, but all of us were seasoned players. Like, he picked people who played D&D before on purpose. So we were able to really do our own thing. And from just going to the bar to me translating for my friends who's trying to, like, hit on somebody that was attractive to, um, I went upstairs to see my friends because they wanted food. Like, again, he just said, you guys have fun, do you? And this is, again, over the course of, like, an hour. But on my first, and I, he pointed out, my only crit for, I think, a year was the first session because my friend, my backstory had written something with demons. Like, they, like, corrupted my family, and I just, I was there to smite. I was, like, a cleric. So I was there to kill all demons, but outside that. Really cool guy. <laughs> so I went upstairs, and um, my friend uh, was actually a shadow mage. So he's in the corner just messing with shadows, and hides our Neanderthal friend, who is playing a Neanderthal in the corner. And I come in there, and like uh, my friend who's behind me walks up and goes, he knows my backstory because we just talked about it downstairs, like just established between characters. And he gets this smile and goes, 
hey, Carl, that was my friend, my character's name. He's like, I think there's a demon over there. And I looked over, and before I could say anything, I'm like, yeah, right. The GM's like, hey, can you roll for that real quick? Like, roll a will save or something? And I bomb it. And I was like, the demon's like, screamed and throw a chair at it and get a crit. And my demon GM goes, oh! And, like, the player's like, are you gonna kill me? And I was like, luckily it's the cleric in you. So I beam him in the head. And, like, he's in the shadow pod. I, he was doing it because I don't, I don't pretend to understand why he was doing it. But, um, I just hear the scream. And I was like, um, and he comes out just going, sorry, I'm making a face, but he's like really angry and slowly comes out, blood just covering his face. And I just go up there and use, I had like a basic healing spell, just wipe it across his head and say, sorry, pal. Like at this point, yeah. And then he just smiles and slowly goes back into the shadow pod. And like the shadow mage is going like, what happened, guys? Like it was, again, like we made it our own and that's how you can make it fun. But that does, like we had played years beforehand, so it's a balance. Actually, I did finally realize it's actually one of my favorite openings to a game. It was more of a prologue than anything else. Um, we played the characters that we were going to play, but as younger versions of them. Um, in the start of the campaign, none of us had ever met. And so the way that the GM decided to have us do it is to each and every one of us have our own, like, entrance into this town. I ran into somebody who basically told me a future of my own and it freaked me out. And then I, we fought people, and that's what, like, combined us together, because it would eventually end up to be our rivals. And we're just like, oh, yeah, like, this... Like, they were our rivals later on in the story. Um, and they showed up cool. and were like, we're better than you, and I'm like, no, you're not, and just punched them a lot. And... That's <laughs> <laughs> yes, a good response. <laughs> and made, uh, good friends, and it was just a lot of fun, because we, own, we all had our own, like, little ways of, like, coming into our character. They were new characters, but we got to play them as kids, and that, like, gave us the chance to make weird mistakes that you wouldn't make as, like, a seasoned adult in the world, and it just helped us get into our characters, I felt, a lot better than just walking into a tavern, or walking into the guild and being all like, yep, this is who I am, hello. That's actually, like, the best way I've ever heard of, like, starting a backstory, too, because usually people do out of character, like, hey, we're gonna roleplay each person separately, which can take a lot of time, and that engages everyone. Like, that's a really good idea. And it gave us uh, at least half of, because I know a few of the characters weren't actually <laughs> in it at that time, but it gave us a connection as youthful friends as well, so we had, like, a very good bond going, a very good trust, a reason to be together later on for the campaign as well. I think my favorite opening was in a one-shot that I ran... Where we were all uh, looking to hang out and do something for an evening, there were some friends, I pat Kenny on the back, visiting from out of town, and um, we all went around and said uh, uh, an element we'd like to see in the game world, and then I just like synthesized them as best I could and spat the players into this world, and I forget all the elements now, but... Where they're talking animals that were cool. There were talking animals in this one. There were talking animals, but they weren't cool. They talking weren't cool. animals that are cool is one way to say an element for a game. A better way would be to say everyone has a familiar assigned at birth. Yep, it was a duck. That for was us the one. At least. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, in this game, which had a lot of different elements. One of them was that there is a, a massive Halloween party that's like citywide. And all the players are at a Halloween party, and I get the wacky idea to have everyone except the party, except the player characters, but everyone else at this party, they turn into, for real, what their costume is. <laughs> and it was a blasty blast. Everyone seemed to have a great time. It was just a wacky one-shot, but a lot of people, you know, seemed to enjoy it. No one had a big, deep backstory planned, um, but... 
having everyone get to interact with these, uh, just an innumerable amount of archetypes and stereotypes forged from Halloween costumes. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. It was a good time. Yeah, the kiss check was still my favorite part of that. The, the what? <laughs> when you had to, you're trying to distract, uh, Jason. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, my favorite was when you turned into a car. Jason Voorhees. <laughs> There's a lot. That's a fun game. I really like that. Kind of built into particularly Vampire, but most of the World of Darkness games, kind of the first session is how you came to be, or either you how you came to be or how you became aware of the fact that you are not a regular person. In Vampire, it's the story of how you became embraced. In Werewolf, it's the story of how you um, discover how you first changed. I feel like those, while it's built into that system, I, I've seen it done. I've seen that same way carried over into other systems where playing out basically the most significant event in your life up until that point is a great way to just kind of be presented with something that is often traumatic for your character and being able to, you already have your backstory, but then you have this, this life changing event happen at the very onset of the campaign. And from the get go, you have the ability to see how that change in your character progresses forward because maybe something happens that you, that nobody planned for. And so you're suddenly grappling with something that you had no idea that you were going to be grappling with, and you're grappling with it from the get-go. That's something I do like about certain systems like that that build the backstory for you. Like, um, not as, like, in-depth, which that that's amazing. I've actually never played World of Darkness. That's super cool. Uh, Edge of the Empire tries to do that, the system I've been running for um, Star Wars, where a really big part of the game is, like, your drivers and what go against you. So kind of, like, positives and negatives for your characters. Um, it's supposed to be roleplay things, obviously, that you put in your backstory, but they actually play into game mechanics. Like, for instance, um, one of your motivations can be, like, man, that empire is pretty bad. So anytime you run into an empire, like, say you run to an agent, you run to a group of stormtroopers, and you're confident enough, you may get a bonus to ambushing because you've trained your whole life to fight them. Versus, you know, a negative is, I'm terrified of the empire reverse of that. No, so. that's not the D20 system. That's the new one, right? That, yeah, the Edge of the Empire that's is like a really unique system. Yeah, yeah, I bought all the dice for it. It's, it's actually, I like it better than the D20 system because it is more based around roleplay. Like, it has mechanics built into your character sheet for roleplaying, which I thought was neat for especially some of my newer players who wanted that extra help. It actually is really cool. That's good. One other way I've started, I have started a campaign that went over incredibly well was all of the players were sitting in a lobby and they were waiting their turn to go in and get their fortunes told with tarot cards. It gives the players to kind of sit and interact and it also has the each player going in and at this point I had no I had very little plan for the campaign. So I was literally revealing tarot cards explaining in vague details where this campaign was going to go from there on out. That's super cool. So we've kind of talked about a lot of getting new players into the game, getting uh, getting a campaign started, and you've talked about running um, Edge of the Empire, which isn't really that old of a system. I want to kind of talk now about like how do you let your players know what you can do in a system that is brand new, either to them or just a brand new system that has just been published? Because that's that's what I I've seen that that's a big barrier. For even experienced players, is just knowing what you can do. 
That's, I mean, using, like you said, Edge of the Empire, like, the first time I played it was only, like, four years ago, because, again, it's it's new. And um, usually the way I run systems is I always try to do ones I play before, so at least have a vague understanding, but in this case, it had been four years. It is such a unique system, I forgot everything. So, um, the way it worked out was one of our my players, the one I told you before, the guy's really, like, just the crunchy parts of the system, he read a lot of it, so he kind of covered character gen while I read game mechanics, so we kind of covered both parts, saying, like, hey, we're both going to teach you this game. I'll be running it, but he'll be helping you gen your characters. And while he was doing that, I kind of got a grasp of it. So afterwards, I had to explain to everybody, this is what the game lets us do. And this is what, as a GM, they know, like, playing with me before, what I let them do, which is usually the play it cool role. Like, if you describe something fantastic to me, even if it's outside of reason, I'll give you a chance. But um, that's something I usually set beforehand, saying, like, I'm a lot more lenient of a DM. But there are rules that we're going to stay within the system. Like, um... That player I mentioned before who usually does his own things, this time I was a little harsher saying, like, hey, this is a little more punishing of a system. It's more of a an edge of the empire. You're supposed to feel just like you're outside of a great power source, the empire itself. So you can die very easily. So I'm like, you can be offed pretty quickly. Your character can be incapacitated. So your actions have a lot harsher uh, consequences than D&D, which can be a little more forgiving, which is kind of funny to say. But this is supposed to be more lethal, the system. And that's something I established beforehand. So I try to give them as honest as a portrayal of what the system is before we get in so no one's caught off guard. Mm -hmm. But how about, like, the actual nitty-gritty of how things are done in the system and how what options are available, like, in combat or in a conversation? Because I've I've run into it every time I introduce a new game system. I've tried tried having a printout of, like, most commonly done um, roles, most commonly done... um, maneuvers or tricks or whatever your system may call it and players look at it for the first session and they they might try to do some things that are outside of just i i swing my sword and do i hit how much damage do i do but i feel like it's always about session three or four that really combats do devolve back into i roll i hit do i take it out no okay how do you keep it fresh and how do you let the players know what they can do and remind them of what they can do? I think that with uh, if you're going at this from an experienced group that's playing a new system that none of them have played before, because you bring up a fair point too, in that it probably will devolve back into eventually, you know, I swing, do I hit? No. Okay, what do I do now? To, to ease them in, you know, to both combat mechanics and like skill mechanics and whatever else there might be, Maybe having a low-stress encounter or, like, skill challenge or something at the very start of the game to sort of let them feel out exactly what they can do and maybe get a feel for the system. And, like, that is not the worst idea in the world. Because I feel like, unfortunately, you kind of just gotta, like, put your nose to the grindstone Mm -hmm. and just try and get everyone on board and eventually, hopefully, everyone will figure that out, you know? And, And this is actually something I've always encountered with RPGs in general is no matter what, you're always gonna have a point where, like, someone misread a rule or misremembers a rule or didn't really understand it when it was explained the first couple times then maybe like no one corrected them so they've had this idea of what it is going forward that was me with 3.5 forever i remember and like that's the system i'm most comfortable with but for the longest time i was running it the wrong way because mm-hmm. no one ever corrected me on it and the rule book wasn't very clear like i'm sure some of the people here at the table have read the 3.5 core book it's not exactly i mean it's 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 better than like 2e or something but yeah it's not really you know clear cut it's kind of clunky i feel like unfortunately no matter what you're always going to have a circumstance where someone's going to be like okay so does that let me hit or like what you know mm-hmm. 
And that also goes into, like, with 3-5 and I've been running for a while, like, because it can be vague in some rulings, like, I'll ask my players, like, say we've been doing something wrong for a year, like, that's our established canon. I'm like, alright guys, from going forward, like, or even the beginning, like, for Edge of the Empire, my friend was like, hey, I want to do this. I'm like, okay, it's kind of like the whole, um, neat beats rule, like, mm-hmm. hey, if we match ACs, is it in favor of attack or defender? That's one of those things, like, we decide in a lot of our games just to make it fun for the players. Like, hey, this is something we will establish, but we will not change. Like, we can make our own rules for our own canon, but make sure that is established right when it happens. Like, when we catch that, like, mistake, like, all right, guys, we've been doing this the whole time. We're going to keep doing this, but going forward, we can change it in a new game. But this is how we've been playing it. And, like, to answer your question from the nitty-gritty stuff, and like, with Edge of the Empire, because it is a very self-explanatory system, but it has a unique dice pool because it made its own. The way you describe it to players like that, like say an interesting thing came up, I'm like, all right, guys, let's make the system our own. Because again, I to be lenient and I like to do kind of cool rules and I try to really engage people the best I can outside of just normal fighting. Like my friend is really good at that, like where he has a blade that has uh, wind abilities in 3-5. And, and the actual mechanic is just you hit somebody, it does like it does um, extra specifically. I want to say it's just gale damage, like gale force. And I was like, that that's cool. Like, But he extrapolated, like, okay, I can shoot wind out of this. I kind of use it to manipulate objects, move things, if I attack hard enough. And we thought, why not? That's not, that's cool. Like, we changed the mechanics. So the way I try to have players get outside of just, I hit it in the face, does it bleed? Is I try to really describe the environment and describe their characters, saying, like, okay, so you see there's, like, two pedestals behind you, egg on one, an eye on the other. The enemy's in between there. There's chandeliers above them. What do you do? And oh, I try to give uh, them as much. Egon from... Ghostbusters is yes. behind one of them. Is yeah. that what you said? Okay. <laughs> so Egon's there, and Egon's on a pedestal saying, help me please. They're like, I ignore him. But um, no, it's I try to make sure they interact with the environment as much as they do with the, uh, the enemy, because that makes it so much more fun for planning moves. Like, mm-hmm. my friend, for instance, multiple times you'd use his gale force to knock an object off to, like, hit somebody. Um, somebody's throwing things at the ceiling to, like, have rocks fall on them, like, outside just the normal attacks. And because I've promoted that whole, like, we can try to make things fun GM mm-hmm. thing... We bend the rules, but make sure it's established canon from the beginning. Okay. What do you do if, as a game master, you feel like the players, they have kind of gotten into the mindset of just, I, I roll to a hit, did I hit, okay, roll damage. I've tried throwing at an in- at them an enemy who who can't either, they're, like in D&D, their armor class is so high that they can only hit on a like an incredibly high roll, like a, a 17, 18, or 19, or 20, and it's three rounds into combat. Nobody has hit them yet, but there are all these other things that they can do to kind of... They can boost... like They can do things to boost up their um, their their attacks. They can do things to de- debilitate the enemy, but the players aren't doing that, and you've, kind, you've, you've described the scenario, but they're continuing to just, well... My my main stat is strength, so I'm continuing to try to hit. And at what point do you, for seasoned players, what point do you say, okay, you guys need to kind of think outside the box on this one? I actually try to do the Bob Ross thing where it's a happy accident. I've actually had to do this before, where um somebody misses, but they whiff in a way that I want them to. Like, they, let's say they're attacking hard, like, going for this thing's throat. Like, going for Egon, let's say, going to fight him. Misses. Hits the egg. I'm like, all right, you're that like that one. You hit this egg and it bursts. Like a toxic cloud comes out and starts turning everyone in the room, including the creature itself. Like I have something like convenient happen. Like oh, I can do that. So I try to make it make sense in stories of like bumping into them. So that's how I try to do it if it can work. And it's it's like you said, if it's like three rounds, nothing's happened. Then I not force their hand. I have a GM intrusion. Like this is something you can do, but make it look like they did it. I think to that encounter we had relatively recently in Abena that's now concluded, but um. 
where there were the ghost soldiers and I was playing a character that had a blade that nullified magic. And despite that, I still, and like, they could also hurt spirits in like ethereal forms and I couldn't slice through them. And my thinking in, in that scenario, because that was, at least I think so, you were intending for that to be a like, think outside the box combat. Yeah. Um, was like, okay, well, I'm clearly, you know, I'm still a strength character. How else can I use my strength besides just like walking up and trying to hack and slash them? I'm like, so how else can I still use my core strongest attribute? But, you know, in a different way. So I looked, I had you describe the enemies to me again. And I'm like, okay, well, they all got these swords. No, you know, and my, my mind's always like, a, okay, I'm going to do this. If that doesn't work, I'm going to do this. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to do this. And so I kind of locked out in there. And then my second thing was, okay, well, I'm going to start hitting the swords. And that worked. So I kind of feel like that's the approach players at least need to have when they come up with these scenarios. They still need to, like, keep in mind their core thing. Because, like, yes, you know, if you're a barbarian character with great strength, you're not going to have high end. So you don't want to have to have it like, oh, you need to beat them in a chess game or something, you know, because you're not going to be able to do that. But I think you need to try to think a little creatively and figure out how you can use your base strong attribute to, like, overcome the the challenge. Something that's always worked for me, for GMs pointing out that, man, that's really not working. Um, If it has been, like, two or three rounds of combat, it's just like, man... A GM was pointing out, man, it doesn't seem to be working. Like, maybe there's something else that we can do or try, because obviously nothing is happening. Like, heavy sarcasm on their part. It really was just like, man, I'm trying to think as hard as I can, and just trying anything possible at that point, because we're dying. Mm -hmm. Like, make it obvious that this isn't working, risk their lives, and then they'll start doing something different instead of just trying to use brute strength. Give it, like, a negative impact and hopefully that'll cause a positive correlation to their thinking. I think if you don't want to be a sarcastic DM, you have players that might not take that well. It's a group you don't know very well. There could be any number of reasons. Because, yeah, obviously you could just come out and say, yeah, you guys are really doing great at this, aren't you? But, um... Nailing it. Keep <laughs> swing- the wall. Yeah, keep swinging that sword. <laughs> doing a lot you for you. <laughs> Eventually it'll either kill you or them, right? That's when you, uh take something on the table and say, oh, I'll swing my sword, and then you stab the GM in the eye. Oh! There no, we, we don't condone that here. Um, <laughs> what I was going to say is that what you could do as a GM is suggest it in a more subtle way by asking for a different type of role. Essentially, you know, pull the, alright, which of my players and their characters here is more likely to notice it? Well, I know that this Eldritch Knight has dabbled in magic, but they keep swinging that sword because that's still their best stat. All right, um, hey, player with the Eldritch Knight, it's your turn now. Do me a favor, um, give me an arcane knowledge roll real quick. And they do. And if they fail it, you could just say, hmm, well, you notice nothing. But that's going to get the players thinking. They're going to be like, what the hell was he trying to get them to notice? And if they succeed their role, obviously you could be like, he's got a magic shield, you gotta fucking disenchant it, you piece of <laughs> trash. The burp's necessary. Yeah, because at this point trash. you're so frustrated that you're just drinking. Yeah, ask for a role, whatever happens, the outcome there, the players are going to realize, oh, the DM just had me do a role that isn't a fucking role to hit. Huh, maybe there's something else about this boss. 
That's and that's a good point. Like something I do to try to promote that players. Like you know, usually like core three point five. You're doing a skill check. It takes your standard action. But I'm like, how about this, guys? I'm gonna give you a free skill check here. And I'm like, yeah, like roll a search, a spot, or like um just listen, like anything, or an arcane knowledge check. And they're like, yeah, oh my gosh, it's a beholder refining. That's that's no rabbit. And they're like, right, he solved the illusion. So um yeah, I'll do that sometimes. You're right. If I need to like promote him, and I that's one of the safer ways that's happened. Um, because usually my players like. After a while, we'll figure it out, but it's always good to help push along the best you can if they're struggling for a couple rounds. Because like you're saying, Nina, I don't want them just dying, having a bad time. I know that um, in a particular situation, one of our uh, enemies couldn't be hit by magic, which we were, ju- we're, we're just magic people. So we're all wizards of some sort. We're just like, God, why won't he get in? And he's just like, nope, oh, there goes the damage. And I'm just like, God damn it, I'm so frustrated, and I just went up and punched him in the face, and they're just like, oh, why'd you do that? That was mean. <laughs> and I was like, well, mean. there we go. And, and everyone was just like, seriously? Really, oh. that's all we had to do? Sometimes it's fun for, like, a storytelling point, though, like, where you actually have something so simple that players wouldn't think of. Like, I know I've had to adapt to a large player base, like, I have a lot of people in my 3-5 games, so I have to make an enemy that can take on many of their strengths, which is hard. And that's one thing they have to realize, who has the best advantage on this. But on the flip side, like you guys were saying, a fun mechanic where the players are so ingrained with hacking and slashing, just shooting magic missiles, like, not really thinking outside the box, like, you need something like that to really just engage them again. And kind of, like you were saying after, like, session 3, like, making sure they have fun. Like, not just going in just for a dungeon crawl, really. Trying out all the abilities that they gend in the beginning of character creation instead of just uh, using the same three that you know m- might work. Yeah, it like breaks out of the archetype into a, a character, which is cool. Yeah. I like that a lot. Quite a bit ago, brought up about like new players and like how their shyness can kind of impact the way that they are introduced into the game, the way that a new player being less inclined to participate either because um, they're just not comfortable with the roof with the rules, or maybe it's just a personality trait that they are a quiet and shy person. Um, what are some ways that you guys can think of to kind of either coax them out of that or um, find ways to overcome that? In uh, both of my new games, I've had like new players that are kind of like shy. And the first one, um, just need to find his voice. Like, he just never done role-playing before, so that doesn't matter. He's the one who has the Sonic Blade I mentioned, the one who thinks outside of the box, because I knew as a person he loves solving problems in, like, outside, like, just, like, unique ways. Like, say there's a wall and you need to break it, he's the one who's going to try to dig under it, find the structural instabilities, and break it. So it sounds more complicated, but that's more fun for him, because he loves stuff like that. So I just throw scenarios at him like that and really dig into his backstory. Like, I... Everyone else was invested in their own level in the game. Like, at that point, newer, old player, they found the thing they hooked onto and really liked, and he was still struggling. So I kind of, I didn't make him the main character, but I gave him a really big center point in the plot so that he had to be in the, like, the spotlight for everything, and he loved it. Like, he was like, oh, my character has importance, I impact the world, this is, this is big for me, and it was actually really, like, it resounded with him, and he still loves that. So sometimes you're just gonna see what that player needs, and what he needed was what he felt a big role. So I gave it to him. And, um, that, that worked out, and, and another flip side, like, there's another new player I have. She's just shy as a person, like, not a shy player, but I'm just, or excuse me, not a shy character, a shy player. And um, for her, I'm just trying to, like, she loves backstory, that's her thing. So I'm just trying to engage her backstory as much as possible, and just in the game, like I mentioned, calling her, like, hey, what do you think? Like, what would your character do here? And she'll, she wants to play, so she'll then say what she wants to do, you know, articulate that, but that's just a matter of me engaging with her, because she waits for me and other characters coming to her, she doesn't actively go out and engage things herself yet, so... I really like for new or shy players to sit close to the game master because then 
whenever they say something, it can be heard by the game master. And then the game master, if, if like they're, they're strategizing or something, the game master can capitalize on if they throw in a suggestion and make sure that if it's something that has any logical sense to working, they can throw it in and say, yeah, that's actually what's going on. And it rewards the player for actually coming forth with a good idea. And it gets the other players to realize, hey, this person figured out what was going on. They have good ideas. We, sh- we should listen to them in the future. Um, I know something that has um, helped other players that I was in games with in the past and with me, I think once or twice, um, was the GM picking out an NPC to kind of like attach to that character. That way that you can engage them in conversation, engage them in what's going on. And if they're struggling, the NPC can easily help them out or something along those lines. Not specifically assign them an NPC, but have that character attached to them. And I always found that to be at least one way of like forcing them to have a connection to the world and helping the engaging concept. Mm-hmm. And it also, that NPC could be not necessarily a guide, but it might also be a responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, kid NPCs are great for like just giving to a new player and saying, this kid is your responsibility. Like you, you met this street urchin and um, this street urchin kid tried to rob you, but now, um, but now is, is attached at the hip. And so you've got this responsibility now of taking care of them. How are you going to do it? And having that NPC then kind of get into trouble. Yeah. Sparks that person to, well, now I have to act because that is part of my responsibility. But with that, the player character has to be on board with it as well. Yeah. I know for a fact that that would capture both the Ninas. I know, I was going to say, I was like, I would love to consistently in every single game I play to have a street urgent child just be like, you're my parent now. Like, of course, of course I can do that. And actually, in the campaign that I'm in now, it has actually happened to our currently shyest and newest player. They, we rescued a child and they just attached to their hip Mm -hmm. and it's helped them at least a little bit so far to kind of be like, it's okay. I'll take care of you. And you can build tragedy too. Like, say they get abducted, something ah, happens. Like, I'm just plot, saying. New plot. Mm-hmm. It helps with the plots. That, that's a good idea. I think as a shy character, one of the pitfalls I fall into is attaching myself to another PC and becoming my sidekick. And I know that's a thing that we brought up before in a past um, podcast, but like, oh god, I have no idea how not to do that. <laughs> Try attaching yourself to an NPC and see how that works. Well, see, but that, the problem with that is that I'll become an NPC sidekick, and that's even worse. <laughs> I, uh, I think Wait. that's an interesting thing to bring up, is PCs becoming sort of sidekicks to other PCs, because I'm not necessarily someone that is on the inverse of that spectrum, but I know that I'm <laughs> the one that tends to, like, <laughs> attract... PC sidekicks. Looks, but it's you or Kyle. It's, it's pretty consistent well, for me. In, it's in, you or Kyle. In other games, too, it's just sort of... I don't know if sometimes it's just the characters that people play, and maybe, like, that another character is looking for, like, a father figure or, like, something. But, uh... You know, I don't know. Or, or, or like, needs a friend. And you're the only person, for whatever reason, that is, like, willing to accept them for, like, crimes they committed or something. That's just an example. Or, and then this is, you know, something that I think goes a little bit deeper, I also think it's, like, personalities at the table. If you have someone that's talking a lot, 
Um, you know, and, and now, this is not necessarily the case with you, Nina, because you talk quite a bit in some games, it's less than others, but I think that, like, sometimes, you know, there may be a personality at the table, and a player's newer, or maybe they're not as confident in their roleplay ability, they're going to stick to someone who's, like, I mean, I run around games like a chicken with his head cut off. Like, I'm doing stuff all the fucking time. Um, I'm always talking, and so I think that, that, unfortunately, people maybe that aren't as confident or are new and are trying to, like, get into it will, like, attach themselves to that because they say, oh, wow, he's doing things. Like, he may not be doing them well, <laughs> but he's, he's doing things. <laughs> wow, um, wow, look at that man go. <laughs> he's, he's all the way over there now. Uh, so, I don't know. I think that's a dynamic. But what I was saying was that if you attach to an NPC, the GM can use that as your crutch, mm-hmm. and or instead of becoming their sidekick, you can reel them back and be like, no, 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 this is for you. <laughs> Gentle pushes, and but you still have that to fall back on if, like, there's something that you can or can't do, and it's good, like, practice for being more of a, ah, screw these other PCs kind of character. <laughs> I will say this, though, and that is because you bring a good point, I think that's a good strategy, Nina. If the game you're in has a GM that is a type to make a very obvious insert character, do not attach yourself to them, because you will rapidly find yourself becoming their sidekick, and that's, you know, because it's their insert character, and that's, you know, they're going to put all of their, like, desire to roleplay with people into that character, and their desire to do things into that mm-hmm. character. Attach yourself to someone maybe not as important in, in the GM's eyes, and then they'll <laughs> be able to let you, you know, not be a sidekick. It's fun for the GM, too, because they get to, like, explore a character they may not have thought of, like, diving into. Yeah. And that can be a cool dynamic between you and the player. Well, guys, what do you say we stop this bullshit and start rolling some dice? Woo! Yeah! This has been a production of Alien Familiar Media. You can find past episodes and more at alienfamiliar.com. You can email us at alienfamiliarmedia at gmail.com. This production is protected under a Creative Commons non-commercial attribution, no derivatives license. Music for this episode is Suburban Outlaw by Forget the Whale and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.